Good evening, everybody. It's nice to see you all. It's been a while. We've had our break. Hope you had a good break. We had a very peaceful one. We didn't really do anything. It's nice. I hope you also had a peaceful time. And I hope you're uh, well, staying well and uh, that your mind is at peace. Uh, all in all, it is a, a fantastic thing to be alive, and not only to be alive, but to be alive together in this particular way. And from the bottom of my heart, I congratulate all of you for being in that situation, participating in it uh, as beautifully as you all do. Congratulations. Uh, today, I want to go further uh, with the text. Uh, but since uh, we've taken a break, maybe you forgot some of the things that uh, Vasubandhu was saying. So it's always good in this case. In a way, you know, the text is actually kind of simple. There are only a few points, but it's hard to remember them and hard to keep them in mind. So I'm going to repeat again things I've probably already said uh, just to just to remind us all. So we know that there are Basuban is proposing that, that reality can be discussed in terms of three natures and, and we know at this point what these natures are, how they're different from one another, and how they work together to show us the world that we're living in, in such a way that we could be uh, able to overcome the suffering that seems impossible to overcome. And we know that Vasubandhu is always emphasizing in this text and in his, in his mind-only teaching, the idea that the, the source of everything, the basis of everything, the fundamental reality of everything is, is mind. And, and he's doing that, not because uh, he has a, an axe to grind on that point, but because he thinks that that's to understand the world in that way is one of the most important ways that we can become free of our projection of this difficult world and this difficult self. They, they go together, you know, the difficult self and the difficult world go together and, and they're a projection that we're making. And if we could see through that projection and understand that everything is mine, we would see that really what there is, is just flow, just the process of transformation of mind. And when we really and truly, not only by reading Vasubandhu's text, but also through our sitting, through our reflection, through our practicing together in Sangha over a long period of time, we, when we really get to see that, then everything seems lighter and life is really workable. Life and everything that it could bring uh, is workable. Now, Vasubandhu certainly doesn't in, intend this idea that everything is mind to be a kind of facile, uh, you know, intellectual game. He, he is not assuming that you just read this text and that's it. He's assuming that you are a practitioner, 
that you have years of practice and contemplation and years of paying attention to your own experience on a granular level. And his words are meant to be pointers for you in that process, to give you a sense of direction, a sense of you know what it is you're looking for, rather than an end in themselves. He's trying to show us the basis for a process that will allow us to reshape our experience so that we can really see for ourselves in our unique way, you know, because we all have our own life. It's very different from everyone else's life. Let's see in, in our own lives what he's talking about, that we really would see it. And remember that our tradition began in China uh, with Bodhidharma, who was a follower of the mind-only teachings. He was a he was a, someone who emphasized the Lankavatara Sutra, which we which we've studied previously in our Dharma seminar, and that's a mind-only sutra. And 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 the reason he emphasized that is because he wanted to show people in China the absolute importance of the practice of silent sitting. And, and you know the legend of Bodhidharma is that that's what he did. He he went away from the emperor's court and sat facing a wall for nine years, as the legend goes, cutting off his eyelids so that he wouldn't nod off while he was sitting. And in China, they say, you know, where his eyelids fell on the ground, sprung up tea plants. And that's where the Chinese get the tea drinking habit, which then the English got from the Chinese and the Japanese got from the Chinese and we all drink tea because of Bodhidharma. He didn't want to go to sleep. And he wasn't doing that to be a show off. You know, he was doing that because he wanted to see reality as it is. And he wanted to free his mind from attachment and clinging and end suffering. And that's the best way. And that's why to this day, we are sitting zazen and we really trust zazen as our path to realize for ourselves what Vasubandhu is telling us in this text. So that's more or less the really important stuff that we've been emphasizing so far and that Vasubandhu is talking about not only in this text, but all of his mind-only texts we've studied. If you recall, his 30 verses in a previous book by Ben and we also studied a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, loosely based on Vasubandhu's teachings. So we're not new to the mind-only teachings. So I'm going to very quickly remind us of what we were doing last week. Verses 26, 27, 28. 26. These three natures have the characteristic of non-duality, ungraspability. Due to non-existence, not existing like it appears, and being the nature of that non-existence, that's the three natures. Due to the non-existence, not existing like it appears, and being the nature of that non-existence. So the first point in the first line here is maybe the most important because I know some people have said, ah, oh, you know, it's hard to understand this, you know. And, and 
this is saying that, well, no wonder it's hard to understand because it is by definition not to be understood. The three natures are essentially non-dual. That's the point. And by definition, that makes them ungraspable and unknowable because knowing is dualistic. I know that you're already in a dualistic world. So he says in the beginning, the three natures are non-dualistic and therefore ungraspable. And then he comments in turn in a very terse way on each of the three natures. And he says almost nothing. It's hard to figure out what he's saying because he uses so few words. But by this point in the text, I think we can kind of figure it out because we have heard so many things about the three natures. So what he's saying in these next two lines here is that the first nature, the first of the three natures, which is he calls the imaginary nature. That, that's the way we live in the ordinary world. That's the world we're all living in. It's the imaginary nature. It's an imaginary world. And it really is imaginary because it doesn't actually exist. We think it does. It seems very real to us, but it doesn't really exist. It is a projection of our minds. And he really means that. In psychology, you know, we, we have the same idea, right? We have the idea of projection. I don't know that much about psychology, but I think projection means that we are conditioned to see, we see what we are conditioned to see. In other words, maybe something happens in the present and we see the past in that present happening. We're not seeing what's really in front of us. We're seeing the past because we're projecting the past onto the present. So that's that's a commonplace idea and a real, one of the most important ideas of psychology. But here, the idea is that that's the only thing that ever goes on. That ordinary reality itself, whether or not we're doing what the psychologists call projection, is always and only projection in just the same way. We are never seeing what's in front of us. We're always seeing some kind of illusion, a projection that comes from our mind. And there is nothing real behind this projection. The projection is the only thing there is. And the problem is simply that we don't know it as a projection. And because of that, we are apt to get stupidly entangled in it and all kinds of problems ensue from that. So that's the first nature. And he's saying it's non-existent. That's all he says about it. The second in this verse, the second nature, the dependent nature, is a more sophisticated and accurate understanding of the world. At this point, we see the, the, that the naive view of the world is, in fact, inaccurate. We see that this painful world of separation cannot be the way things really are. It doesn't exist. But we still have a basis for our attachment and clinging in the interdependence that we think actually exists. But interdependence is not something that can actually exist. Emptiness is interdependence. And emptiness is not a force or an entity or an event or a thing 
So this second nature, the dependent nature, also doesn't exist. It is just a view. It is just a condition of mind. It's not a real thing. And, the th and, and he, this is what he says in a few words in this verse. And in the, in the, in the third nature, he says, is not anything on its own. It is just the recognition of what the other two natures really are, non-existent, just mind, just illusion. So there's no third nature. There's no complete realized nature other than really understanding the other two natures as being non-existent. Now, from the point of view of the language of Buddha Dharma, all of this that doesn't actually exist is called Buddha mind, Buddha, Buddha nature, true nature. It is the magnificent drama of our living and dying, of our suffering and ending of suffering, and of our connecting to one another in love. Because that is what's actually real. And all our crashing around and our violence and our confusion is simply not real in the same way. And again, I'm going to repeat a phrase I've already used more than once, I'm sure, in these talks on Vasubandhu, my favorite line from the Prajnaparamita 8,000-line sutra could be like the theme song of all of Mahayana Buddhism, patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced, meaning that don't exist. Patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced. Bodhisattvas who practice the three natures know that the suffering of the world is a sad and inevitable human mistake. These Bodhisattvas practice Kshanti Paramita. They accept the suffering of sentient beings with a great sympathy, even though they know there is really no suffering and no beings who suffer. And this is also the source of the Bodhisattva's essential hopefulness and enthusiasm for living. Because Bodhisattvas know that there is nothing that changes. There is nothing but change. And so no situation can only be dark. No matter how dark it looks, it will change. It will be different. It already is different. It already is not as it seems. So, you could say then that basically there is literally nothing to this teaching about the three natures. There's nothing to it, you know. That's the kind of funny, beautiful, delicious joke. I mean, there's nothing to it. There's no big realization that we have to work hard to develop. There's no progress we need to make. No stages we need to go through, though, if you recall, the verses previous to these was about how the three natures can be viewed as three stages of practice. But here, he's saying that, no, forget 
stages and accomplishment. Nothing exists, only projection. What that means is it is beautiful and it is just enough to be alive. This is such a profound idea. It's the simplest possible idea. It's enough to be alive. There could not possibly be more. And yet, this is so hard to accept, right? We are all so convinced that there's something off kilter, something must be wrong, something must be done, right? We are, we are sure of that. Something must be done. And, and, I, and I quoted this last time from Ben's commentary. It's such a wonderful little Zen story that I quoted again. Uh, the uh, same Layman Pong and his family. Layman Pong says, referring to the path, the way of practice, difficult, difficult, like trying to store bushels of sesame seeds on top of a tree. In other words, it's totally impossible. Put a bushel, bushel of sesame trees, seeds on top of a tree and the wind blows and Forget it, you know, no way. But Mrs. Pong, hearing that, she says, no, no, it's easy. Like touching your feet on the floor when you get out of bed. The easiest and most natural thing in the world, assuming you can't get out of bed. And their daughter, uh, Ling Zhao, says, neither easy nor difficult like the teachings of the ancestors shining on a hundred grass tips. This is a very beautiful thing, don't you think? To see the shining dew on the grass tips in the morning, in the sunlight, literally as the teachings of the ancestors. And these sayings, you know, by the Pong family, which taken together are, you know, the truth about the Dharma, that it's really difficult and it's really easy and it isn't difficult or easy. It's difficult because it's so profound. And we kind of feel it's awesome. And we're really trying hard. We're really respecting the practice, respecting the teachings, we're studying the teachings, we're doing zazen, we're attending, you know, sessions and all day sits and sitting every day. We're working at it and we're developing it over time and we're devoted and we keep on with this diligent effort. Some of us sitting here tonight have been doing this effort for, you know, literally decades and decades and we're not stopping. And yet, you never master it. You never get to the end of it, not even close. In a way, really, you never get anywhere. And the more you go on, the clearer that is, which makes it really easy. 
because it's never something far away. It's never, you know, over there in another place where someone else lives or in the future at some distant time when we are, you know, more wise individuals. The only place it ever is, is right here in this moment of your life right here in the middle of every moment of experience. Everywhere you look, you see the true Dharma. And yet, if you say that, and you think about it like that, you're going to fall flat on your face, and you're going to miss it. So it's kind of funny, you know, it's difficult and easy at the same time, and impossible to grasp. So in the next verse, Vasubandhu gives a famous analogy that we talked about last time, and that is the, the, the sort of famous um, image of this text, the one about the elephant. Remember the elephant? Verse 27, like an elephant that appears through the power of a magician's mantra, only the percept appears. The elephant is completely non-existent. So here we're imagining an elephant I guess maybe they had stuff like this in ancient India where people could, through a mantra, they could conjure up stuff like an elephant. So the magician does this, and the imaginary nature is you're seeing what you take to be an elephant. Whoa, there was no elephant, there's an elephant all of a sudden. And you think it's an elephant. The dependent nature is you're realizing that there is not an elephant there, but there is an illusion of an elephant that you can see, but it is not an elephant. And the complete realized nature is the direct perception in the image of the elephant of the non-existence of the elephant. That's how Vasubandhu sees it. Now, this might be a little hard to see, you know, the difference between the dependent nature and the complete realized nature. I mean, it's easy to see the difference between thinking you see an elephant and realizing you don't, but it's hard to see. And I think throughout this text, I find it always a little difficult to see the difference between the dependent nature and the complete realized nature. And in this, in this text, Vasubandhu, teaches about this in a slightly different way than we're used to in Mahayana Buddhism. The difference is hard to see because both of them are seeing through the illusion. So what's the difference? I think the difference is one of immediacy. It's a visceral difference. With the dependent nature, you understand conceptually and emotionally that the elephant is an illusion but you still see an elephant. And with the completely realized nature, you see with a degree of immediacy, without any conceptualization, in the elephant, that the elephant does not exist. In other words, you see directly the non-existence of the elephant rather than having to think about how the elephant is non-existent. So it's a more direct and visceral seeing. You see in the illusion 
the true reality of the illusion, which is the non-existence of what you are seeing. So the important thing about this is that when you see the world in this way, in its complete realized way, your whole way of living and your whole emotional makeup undergoes a shift and you really are living in a different world. And what I just explained is set forth by Vasubandhu in, in the next verse, more or less. He's, he's saying in the next verse what I just said. Verse 28, the imagined nature is the elephant, the other dependent nature is the visual percept, the non-existence of the elephant therein is explained to be the consummate or the complete realized nature. So I was using there uh, Jay Garfield's translation of verse 28. So last time I ended with that, and I said, uh, I said this, this sentence, which I, I'm thinking about because somebody emailed me and they said, oh, that was the sentence that I really paid attention to last time. And it was this. The world is actually imaginary. More profoundly imaginary than we could ever imagine. That being the case, why don't we imagine it truly and beautifully, humbly, and with love? So, when you appreciate the complete realized nature of things, you understand that you're imagining the world this way is more than what we usually think of as imaginary. It's not a fantasy. It's actually the truth. It's actually real. And you will live it. And you will have complete confidence in it. Come what may. You cannot unknow that. Okay. So now we go on to another couple of verses. 29. The false imagination thus appears from the root mind as dual. The duality is utterly non-existent. The mere appearance is there. So this verse explains how it is that this world that we live in occurs. From the root mind, the false imagination appears from the root mind as dual. And the root mind is Alaya Vijnana, the eighth consciousness, in the eighth consciousness system of Vasubandhu. The eighth consciousness is the source of the world. It's the creator of the world, so to speak. Within Alaya Vijnana, all possible worlds and all possible experiences exist in potential. In any given moment, the experience that arises in a particular place and time will be the one that a person's causal stream is going to necessarily produce, given all that came before. Since my particular causal stream has a lot of conditioning in it from long ago that I 
shorthandedly call myself, me, it is really likely, although not certain, but very, very likely that in the next moment I will have an experience that feels like myself rather than one of you. And the same is true for you. And beyond that, the specifics of what I will be thinking or experience, experiencing in the next moment will also be causally conditioned. And that's karma. And the nature of all these experiences, beginning with the fact that I recognize them as experiences that I am having, is dualistic. Any experience has to be dualistic. I have an experience. I am over here. The world is over there. I am imagining that I'm seeing and hearing things that are coming from outside myself. And therefore, there must be an inside myself, my secret thoughts that are mine. The world exists and I exist duality. But this is not the case. This is imaginary. This duality is so baked into all my perceptions and thoughts that I don't even think of it as duality. And it's non-existent. It's not actually there in any way you could find or confirm. I have really and truly just made it up. Not just me, of course, everybody. That's human. That's what human beings do. So this means that all the suffering I perceive within and without based on this duality is also in just the same way non-existent. It really and truly doesn't exist. The bare bones of the experience is there because the verse says at the end, the mere appearance is there. Yes, but the way I receive it and feel it and understand it is completely wrong. So Ben has a really interesting commentary to this verse, which I recommend you paying attention to. And in it, he quotes, uh, I wonder where he got this. this, is a very obscure quotation from uh, the Anguttara Nikaya number 206, I think, that's 10th group number 206 item, <laughs> uh, that says that, this is the, the quote, accumulated karma will not become extinct as long as its results have not been experienced. In other words, causes don't go away. They can never disappear or dissolve. They must always come forth and be experienced. So this is a very crucial point about karma in basic Buddhism. Everything that exists, exists because of causality. It doesn't come from nowhere. It cannot be uncaused. The way the sutra puts this, it's very beautiful and simple. If this, then that. End of story. If this, 
than that. Events occur because previous events have caused them to occur. In the case of human beings, we're born because of the causality that brought our parents together and because of all the causes that produce them, including the world in its time and place. So we are not born as blank slates. Anything could happen. No, we're already very conditioned at birth. We all know this, to be a certain kind of person. But of course, we don't know exactly what kind of person we're going to be because from the very beginning, this and that happens. We make choices. We have perceptions. We have thoughts. Things happen. All of that shapes who and what we are in, every, in any given subsequent moment. And whatever happens in any moment, Vasubandhu is saying here, is an experience already existing in potential in Alaya Vijnana that is activated, becomes actual in our karmic stream by everything that has already happened to us in the past. It's a wonderful kind of thought, you know. It takes so much pressure, right, off of you. It's like, I can't help it. This is who I am. This is what I am. Nothing else could possibly happen in this moment other than what is happening. There's no escape. Which may sound like terrible news, right? <laughs> oh no, really? There's no escape? I have to be this way forever and ever? I'm doomed to experience what I'm conditioned to experience? Well, in a way, it is kind of like that. You know, we're not going to be somebody else. This life is given to us to be as we are. We will not escape our fate. On the other hand, this is wonderful news because it means that whatever we are is absolutely not our fault. And that in this moment, we have the capacity to choose to condition our minds in a different way. We can do that. And if we do that, it will definitely have an impact. So all of us have done a lot of that, right? We've all chosen to practice. We've chosen to pay attention to the Dharma. We've chosen to sit. We've chosen to study. We've chosen to take care of our mind and emotions. And I think we can all attest that, yes, this has definitely made a difference in our living. Even though we're still the same person with the same baggage, it's made an enormous difference. But remember, the duality that makes all of what I've just said so doesn't actually exist. It is fundamentally imaginary. So here's how this plays out in real life. Say, and right now I'm sitting here talking to you and all of a sudden I'm overcome with a terrible anguish that grips my heart. 
When that happens, there's nothing that I can do about that. That moment arises because of everything that happened in the past. It has to be there. But the false imagination, the duality baked into this feeling, doesn't have to be there if I realize the complete realized nature of that feeling, if I really see what that feeling is. If I do, I will naturally and spontaneously not see that feeling as a feeling of anguish. I will feel its pain, but I will understand it as a beautiful expression of the universe necessary expression of the universe that happens to be arising right now in my heart. And I will patiently accept it. And I will not grab hold of it and make a mess of it and hit myself over the head with it or hit somebody else with it and cause all kinds of harm. I will see that its appearance in my life right now is an expression of Buddha nature. It is a teaching of Buddha. It is an opportunity for me to develop my compassion further. And this is not something I'm going to have to talk myself into by applying, you know, good Buddhist lessons. This is going to be an immediate experience that I will have. That's how I will feel that feeling. And again, that's just the practice of Bodhisattva Paramita Kshanti, right? That's the, that's how Bodhisattvas practice patience. Understanding the nature of everything that arises, that, that things do not really exist dualistically, and in this sense, don't exist at all. We can be patient with things. It's not a bad idea if, if you need to do it, and it helps, and it often does, to apply Buddhist lessons and so on. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not supposed to do that. I'm just saying that when you realize the complete realized nature of things, you don't need to do that. In his commentary to this verse, Ben talks a lot about trauma. What we call trauma is a particularly drastic version of what's always happening. False imagination creating conditions for clinging and grasping. And we get stuck in the web of that like a fly in a spider's web. And we thrash around, we tighten the web tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And when we've been traumatized in our lives, this is what we do. And it's really, really, really hard not to do that. In fact, we are compelled to do that. The conditioning, in other words, is not just garden variety conditioning. It becomes very, very strong. But Ben uses his own example to say that even when there is traumatic conditioning in your karmic stream, it is possible to get out of this trap simply by paying attention. And that's where the verse about karma comes in, allowing the karmic results to come safely into your heart. So you can safely experience the trauma and little by little discharge it.
And as he says, this is not something a person does by themselves usually. You really need a lot of help. But if you're willing to accept the help and apply yourself, it can be done. And he, he, he counts himself, I think, as an example of a person who, who has done this. So he knows what he's talking about. So that's trauma. But even without trauma, without what we call psychologically as trauma, it's always like that. In other words, we're always kind of stuck in that way. And the thing about that is that then we realize that trauma is not some weird, unfortunate person who's been traumatized too bad for them. We realize that we're all in this boat. And so we have a lot of sympathy for anybody who's been through things that are really difficult. Maybe our path has not been so difficult, but in a way we really understand because we all have this first nature, this imaginary nature, and we're all caught in it in just the same way. So in verse 30, he returns to the metaphor of the elephant. The root consciousness is like the mantra. Thusness, and this is Ben, Ben uh, and his Chinese collaborator translating here. Thusness is like the wood. Conceptualization is like the appearance of the elephant and duality is like the elephant. So what, what he's saying there, what Vasubandha is saying there, go something like this. Remember, the elephant was conjured by a magic spell. But in this verse, we learn that actually, it wasn't just the magic spell. There was something there, a pile of wood, maybe. It says wood. There's some, maybe it was a pile of wood, roughly, somehow in the shape of an elephant. Maybe the conjurer came before everybody arrived and sort of set up some pieces of wood so that when you looked at it, you didn't think it was an elephant, but after the mantra was recited, it looked like an elephant. There was some wood there. But with the mantra, we are caused to see that pile of wood as an actual living elephant. But this is not something we perceive as much as something we conceptualize or imagine or make up because of the mantra. And perception actually is like that, in fact. Perception is a conjuring. It really is physiologically. Perception is a conjuring. It's a conceptualization. It's, it's, it really is a making things up. And, and maybe you have experienced this. I've, I've experienced it many times. I'm sure you have too. When you see something, you actually see something, and it's not there. You can have the opposite experience, which I have all the time. I'm sitting in Zaza. My eyes are open. I see nothing. I mean, I don't see the wall in front of me or anything, even though there's things there in front of my eyes. So the classic example of seeing something that is not there is seeing a snake in startling, when really what it is is a curved rope, not a snake. Well, this is what we're doing all the time. That's how perception is. It's mistaking something for something else. 
And so uh, it's nice that this verse adds the idea that a lie of Ajnana, the storehouse consciousness, is like a spell. It's a spell that causes all kinds of things to appear depending on what we need to appear in a given moment, just like the elephant. But Alaya Vijnana is not a thing itself, it is just a spell. The wood is the mere thing itself minus the spell. So this is a kind of subtle point, and I, I'm not sure that I can give a good explanation of it, but I'll try this. Vasubandhu thinks that there is a world, you know, mind only sort of implies, well, there's nothing. So what the hell, we can do whatever we want. No, no, it's not that there's nothing. There is a world, a world of thusness, just as it isness, a world as it truly is, its complete realized nature. It's not that things are just trivial illusions. There's no elephant, but there is a pile of wood that we mistake for an elephant. There's not nothing. But here's the tricky part. The pile of wood is also conjured. You know, it's not a real entity. The reality of the pile of wood is that we know that it's conjured. And we also know that it's conjured to appear to be an elephant. So we see the elephant just like everybody else, which means we understand perfectly well what everybody else is experiencing. We're not like some kind of a zombie running around the world having no idea what everybody is seeing. So this is, I realize, a little convoluted, but I think this is what Vasubandhu was saying. It's convoluted because it is exactly paradoxical. You know, it, it is not this way or that way, but both this way and that way, and it's neither way and every way and so on. He says this in, in, the, in the verses. So the last, last thought here. And again, this is bringing this down home, you know, to our actual practice. I don't remember if I mentioned this last time, but uh, because I'm trying to keep track, at least somewhat, the best I can, with uh, my friend Hosan, Alan Sunaki, uh, who is uh, a disciple of my teacher and therefore a Dharma brother of long standing. I'm trying to keep track of him and, and hold him intentionally in my heart. I'm also keeping track of the people in Israel-Palestine because I'm in touch with many people there. And, and there are other people too in other places in the world where there's a lot of suffering. So I'm really trying to keep track of this. And, that, and, and that's why I'm practicing for a while every day, sending and receiving meditation. And I was thinking, you know, this, I, I, I'm sure you're all familiar with that meditation. We've, we've talked about it a lot. 
And this is a meditation that comes directly from Vasubandhu's teaching here. When you breathe in the suffering, you are taking it seriously. You know how difficult the suffering is. You know that actual people you really care about are having an actual hard time. But you couldn't do that if you thought that the suffering was some substance in them that wasn't transferable to you. And you also couldn't do it if you weren't able to breathe out peace and relief from the suffering. That's how the practice works. And you can do it because you know that the complete realized nature of the suffering, that it already is this way, is rest and peace. There is relief of suffering always at the heart of every moment of suffering. Suffering has that nature, its complete realized nature. And that's why you can breathe it in without hurting yourself. And that's why when you breathe out, you can send healing and peace to the person who's suffering or the people who are suffering. So I've been practicing this and I have to pay attention because I notice that my tendency is to breathe in more than I breathe out, you know. I notice this, and I think that's because I must believe more in the suffering than I believe more in the, you know, in the relief from the suffering. So I have to pay attention to make sure that I'm exhaling just as much as I'm inhaling and remembering that point of healing just as much as I'm remembering the pain of the suffering. So that's what I wanted to say this week. And I'm uh, very, very happy, as I said in the beginning, to see all of you. And uh, it's, it's a great uh, thing for me to be able to uh, study the Dharma and share it with you every week. It's, it's really quite wonderful for me. But I won't be able to do it next week because uh, I'm going uh, on Friday. Kathy and I are going to visit our children and grandchildren in New York. And Sue will give the talk uh, at seminar next week. And uh, that'll be good. She'll, she'll give her reflections on these teachings. Um, so there's two more weeks after that uh, for me to finish up talking about the last uh, eight verses in the, in the text. And uh, we're going to be at the church in person, those of you who can make it, uh, on the 31st, the last Wednesday of the month. We, 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 at one point, we thought we would be in person on the 24th, and there was a notice of that on the website, but it's changed now, and we'll, it's going to be the 31st, just to be clear. And the following um, Saturday after that is our all-day sit at Gringo. It's the first one that we'll be doing. We will have done there since uh, November, and that's also the opening of our practice period. We're going to start the day with opening the practice period and installing Andlor as our chasseau 
That is, assuming that Anlor agrees to do it in the ceremony, which usually Shusos do, but you never know. So it's kind of exciting to see what happens. That'll be February 3rd. And I think by now you have received an email, right? Uh, announcing the practice period included in the email is an application. And uh, we, we already know that you're, since you're uh, a sentient being, you are eligible for the practice period and you have met the requirements. So there's nobody who's turned away from the practice period. But, but nevertheless, we do want you to apply because we want to know who's in the practice period, who's on the, you know, so we can send you stuff. So please do apply and, and take that seriously. We, we only have nine days, I think, from today to apply. And we do have to, if the app, I've said before, if the applications keep dribbling in, you know, all the way, all the time from the 19th through the practice period, then it gets really hard to keep track. And all of us are getting to the point where it's more and more difficult to keep track of stuff. So please fill out the application. It's very easy to do. It takes you five seconds to fill out the application uh, before the 19th. So uh, this is exciting. Practice piece. Yeah. Norman, I'm sorry, but can you remind people to please sign up for register for the all day sit because those spaces may go quickly. 